Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people who are diagnosed with the positive STI to get the therapy, support, and other resources that they need in order to help them become advocates for themselves after their diagnosis and work through the mental, emotional aspects of it, as well as uplifting and encouraging use of sex educators and sex-positive organizations, sexual wellness-related organizations, so that people are better prepared for conversations around consent, STI disclosures, and they have access to things like condoms and other barriers, birth control, sex education, STI testing, and STI treatment. You can go and check us out at www.spfpp.org for more information. And the website's kind of under construction. There's going to be more pages that's going to look so cool. I'm going to have a directory of all the resources and all of the guests that have been on the podcast um, who have these kinds of resources so that you'll be able to access them a lot smoother. So work with me, bear with me. This is an ongoing process. And it's going to constantly evolve as it has from just being the STD podcast to the sex positive podcast. Today's guest is Ella Dawson, who I've reached out to probably a year and a half ago, way before I was probably ready for us to have this conversation. (laughs) And uh, I I have the Twitter message, too. I just can't pull it up right now because it's on my phone and I'm using my phone to record. But that would have been fun to see. Um, How are you, Ella? I'm good. How you doing? Good, good. So I was really late to this podcast recording. 24 minutes to be exact. I uh, This morning I thought I could be Superman and get all of the things that I needed done before. And I also thought that in my calendar I had it saved as noon. And then the EST didn't show up until I opened up the calendar. <laughs> I was like, oh crap, I really don't have time to do all of this stuff. And then there were just little things that kept happening. Uh, making me a little bit late. So I want to just thank you um, for being able to make time to do this. Oh, of course. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Now, I found you a little bit different than most people do. Um, I found you, I've heard your name. So I was diagnosed with herpes roughly seven years ago. I feel like I've been saying seven years for like the last two years. So (laughs) it's probably been closer to eight now. Um, When I began interviewing people, your name came up with a few of the guests, and then eventually I was like, oh, Ella Dawson, Ella Dawson, and I would the name would just always escape me when I went to go and, like, search, and then, like I said, I found you on Twitter, I was like, oh, that's who this is, and then sent you a message and kind of just, like, lost track, and then I, like, found you on Instagram, like, you were hiding, you just went, like, off the radar, <laughs> and uh, I was like, wait a minute who is this? And then I see that you were doing like book reviews and you're just reading. Um, and it seems like you're doing what you're passionate about right now. Yeah. I, so I used to be quite active in the herpes community. I was a writer. I talked a lot about my experience with herpes and specifically disclosing. And I, I did that a lot from age 22 to maybe 24, 25, and eventually just got really burnt out of, um, being so emotionally vulnerable and I wanted to prioritize myself for a bit having been so public. So I talked about kind of going into retirement, which is, is, it sounds kind of silly, but I basically just took a break and I needed to step back for a while to focus on myself and being in my twenties and, and recover from having shared so much. Um, but I am 
trying to be more active. I'm refocusing as, as more of a general sex writer and sex critic than herpes specifically, but herpes is still part of my life and it's still something that I'm passionate about. And it's been really amazing to see all of these new figures in the herpes community who are public and sharing their experiences like you. And it's been, it's just made me want to get back in the, in the space, even though it's not my primary focus. So I'm really excited to be here and, and I'm delighted that you reached out on Instagram and, uh, Hello. Yeah. So you said a few things that I want to make sure we touch on being burnt out. So I talk to um, I try to keep in contact with everybody because I know that this is an emotionally draining thing. There are a lot of messages that come in from people who don't intentionally try to drain you or deplete you. But it's just that it's coming from a frantic place. And being a safe space just means that to them, you're someone that they can talk to without having to address that fear and oftentimes it is draining and there's a lot of these unknown expectations on us as advocates to be there and be ready and be available the moment people reach out and I've seen people get these messages like back to back to back like oh why aren't you messaging me back you're you can post on social media or you can go and take a shower you can go work out but you can't message me back and those kinds of things are while I know that they're not intentionally, you know, no one's trying to disrespect anyone, but these are the kinds of things that just happen. Do you have any advice, first off, for people who are reaching out for support in reaching out to an activist to keep them from having um, that, that having drained the person that they're reaching out to, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's something that I thought a lot about because I really struggled with it when I started, especially because when I was really public about, I guess it was three or four years ago, um, I there weren't as many folks on the scene. So when there was somebody who went public with having herpes, it was very common to receive kind of a deluge of attention. And when I wrote my first essay for Women's Health Magazine that went viral about disclosing herpes to people, I received literally thousands of emails, Facebook messages to my private accounts from folks who who were so grateful for what I was doing and, and hadn't had the opportunity to share their story with anybody. And I like sometimes I think there's this this misunderstanding that people have about online attention as as long as it's positive, it is received positively um, and that only harassment is draining when in reality, any kind of attention is very startling, especially if you're not used to it. So I received very little harassment that first year, but I received so much more attention than I'd ever received in my life that it was quite overwhelming and a little bit disturbing for me as like a 22-year-old, 23-year-old sex writer who had just kind of been like an intern at a media company and never really been a public figure before. And um, I, some of the things that I've thought about since then and have realized is I'm very grateful for people who send messages. Um, I get them all the time on Instagram now, even though I haven't been active in the space for a while. I love when people send messages of just like, hey, like, here's what I really like about your work. Here's what I'm going through. And I just wanted to say thank you so that it's clear that they are not asking a huge amount from me. They're not asking a bunch of advice. They're just saying they're making that connection. And that makes it a lot easier for me to respond and, and say, like, I just to have that conversation, but I don't feel like I'm being asked for anything, which sounds selfish even when I say it. I'm aware of how selfish that can sound, but I I don't have the, the time and the energy and the space to always be the 
the medical professional that folks would like or to give very intense guidance. So being mindful of when you're reaching out to somebody that you appreciate or who's made a difference for you of exactly what, what you're really asking from them. Um, and if you do, if you are looking for advice, whether it's medical or personal or psychological, keep in mind who you're asking for that advice. I'm not somebody with any medical background. I'm not trained in the public health space. I'm really just a writer who loves to talk about herself. So if you have a question about your symptoms or about um, some ethical nuanced thing that you're going through with your family or with your partner about disclosure, I really can't help. Like I don't have the training, I don't have the background, and then I feel guilty because I can't help. And um, keeping in mind who you're going to for what is really important. And often if you're looking, if I think a lot of folks when they see public figures within the herpes community, they're just so grateful to know somebody who has that same experience and they want to talk about their experience with someone who gets it, which is a very human instinct. But I think it's worth redirecting that energy to thinking about who in your real life who knows you and is invested in you, who can really support you might be better to reach out to instead. Even if they don't have that firsthand, like firsthand experience of what you're going through, they know you so well and they understand what you need. And it might be frightening to share this personal experience that you're going through that feels so shameful with somebody who doesn't already know you might worry about being judged but at the same time i find it really funny that we find that scarier than reaching out to a total stranger with like a very traumatic story that we have so i think just it's worth thinking through what you're looking for and what you really need and that can help you think about who is the best person to reach out to and and what you're really looking to gain from them in that conversation yeah Everything that you just said, I love. Um, and the biggest part that I want to leave people with is that we do look, we, we come off as being more of friends through a diagnosis than what we really are. And oftentimes we'll be approached as if, you know, this person knows us, but you have to keep in mind, like we are looking at um, when I open up a message from a stranger perfect example someone messaged me and was like i don't know if i'll ever have sex again what can i do i was just diagnosed and i'm like well, all right well the first thing you need to do is just take a deep breath you know well and as i'm i sent that message and as i'm typing i get another message from them that says i'm 16 and i stop and i was like oh i can't interact with you anymore because this is the internet and i don't know what's going to happen so at that point i had to message uh some female identifying folks in the space and be like hey can you big sister this situation because i just simply don't feel comfortable i'm not qualified and i should have let her know as well like if you don't mind i would like to direct you to somebody who can be more useful you know while i may be perceiving this as like a big brother little sister type situation i'm not gonna say here's how you can have sex now to a minor and get myself in any kind of legal trouble so these are the kinds of things that i think are important for people who are reaching out to understand as well it's like we don't know where you're coming from and we have to also be able to protect ourselves in these instances as well absolutely and we're also just humans like i i think that there's i think folks sometimes think that we make it look easy like that we have um that because we're public figures we're completely comfortable with our own experiences that we've kind of fully healed that we have like 
endless energy and endless attention to give because we're in this space and that's what we've chosen. And unfortunately, like we're not superheroes. I have a lot of mental health stuff going on. I also have like a life with complicated things, whether it's my job or my family. I, I have a lot else. We all do. And so if you're ever frustrated that you've reached out to one of us and we haven't replied, like, please just remember that we are humans with our own priorities and struggles and issues and like I have a lot of difficulty being there for folks when they've just been diagnosed because my experience getting diagnosed was very traumatic for a number of different reasons and there's some things that I just find triggering to talk about and that I just can't revisit yet and it's important to keep in mind that while while we're doing this work because it really matters to us and it's important we are still people with our own limitations and our own vulnerabilities. And please give us the benefit of the doubt if you're ever disappointed in us or feeling like we're not living up to something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we all have this instant accessibility. We have different tools for that. And oftentimes, one of the things that I'll hear from people who are advocating is that Often the questions that are being asked, the answer is often in some of the resources that we work to provide. And these are resources that are very easily accessible, searchable, findable, shareable, and concise. These are things that people have worked really, really hard to create, and they've done all this research and put so much energy into creating the answer to your question and the answer to the question that you're not asking yourself yet. So perfect example, um, if you look at any of the herpes activist pages, I'll use uh, Sex ELD Education, um, Emily DePass's page. There are so many well-organized charts there that talk about STIs, STI diagnosis. Um, we're talking about disclosure conversations and different just tools that are so simply put, but so much goes into them so that they can be easy for you to find. If you reach out to someone and this information is literally right there in front of you on their page and aren't willing, you aren't, if you're not willing to take the time to just look through that, you may find the answer, but it's also one, it's one more draining thing for a person to have to constantly pull their attention away from creating more content that is going to be useful to people to have to go and answer your question that they've already answered before. So I just want to say that to say this, please be courteous and mindful of that. Um, there's this, this podcast, for example, I don't have a problem with people reaching out to me because I am, I will say that I don't know any other black men in this space, for example. So when a black man or a black woman reaches out to me, it's usually in regards to something that just hasn't been shared or posted yet. Like, how do I deal with this? How do I tell my family? Because it's different it's different culture to culture. Um, and there are so many other elements of that, but just know that the resources are usually out there and just please, please, please be willing to take the time to look through them just so that we don't create a situation where our advocates become burned out a lot sooner. Yeah. It's also in your own best interest to go look for those resources because you will, you will derive so much power and so much comfort from doing that research yourself. Like one of the things that helped me, 
process and heal after I was diagnosed was doing that research and educating myself. I felt like I was building armor and building all of these facts that I could use to then talk about my STD with people. And it was, it was ultimately really good for me to go do that work. It helped me feel like I was less powerless. So as much as it can be frustrating, I never want, I never want to be one of those people who's just like, go Google it, but go Google it, go explore, go learn. Like there's so much out there. This is such a wacky world. And, and I think that it's, it's ultimately beneficial if you take the time to learn and educate yourself as much as possible without asking for easy answers from an advocate. Yeah. And go Google it by go Google it. We don't mean just Google herpes. Please don't just Google herpes. If <laughs> yes, you have, specific. yes, if you have a specific question, because when I was diagnosed, one of the things that I Googled, I Googled herpes and I was like, Whoa, not that. That's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. And it became how to manage herpes. What are some foods to eat to help with herpes? And through that education, I learned things that I just didn't know. I thought that I was going to always have a permanent outbreak. I thought that those visible symptoms were just going to be there and I was never going to have sex again because it was so painful and I was just going to have to deal with that for the rest of my life. And then come to find out, oh, it goes away. Okay, good nutrition, exercise, um, manage your stress. And really it just gave me reasons to be more mindfully aware of the stressors that were in my life and be able to, you know, level things out, banish, balance (laughs) things a little bit better moving forward. Absolutely. So um, on the other end of that, so we talked about what um, people who are reaching out to advocates can do. So what about advocates? Because this is emotionally draining work at times and a lot of us don't get compensated a lot of us are doing things in our own spare time there's so much that is going on in our lives that we oftentimes create this higher prioritization or sense of urgency for serving the community and we also have to go to work and we have to make time for ourselves and we have other stuff going on, like you said, family, friends and our own personal things. So what are some ways that we can protect ourselves from being burned out? Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but I, it's a well-known idiom of put your own oxygen mask on first. Like you have to take care Southwest of Southwest Airlines, first. they say that. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, American Airlines. But it's, it's true. Like you have to take care of yourself first. You have to make sure that you are healthy, that you are comfortable, that you feel safe, that you are satisfied with the work that you're doing. Because if you are not prioritizing yourself, you will not be as able to serve and you will not be as able to do all the creative thinking and the creative projects that you're interested in. Uh, I think that we really expect advocates to be endlessly selfless and it's it's a very virtuous stereotype of the all-giving volunteer who is there for everyone and who doesn't sleep and will sacrifice everything to do the right thing and I really subscribed to that when I started I felt like I had this calling and this mission and that it was more important than anything else and that I should be so grateful to have this opportunity and to be this leader and that was also reinforced by a lot of the messages I was receiving when I started to pull back from the work I had people saying like how dare you turn your back on us how dare you stop writing as frequently like people got quite hostile with me because they felt like I had a moral obligation and it's I I really encourage people to 
prioritize themselves and not feel selfish when they do it. Yeah. It is it is hugely important that you take care of yourself because if you are not doing that, nothing else will be as strong and you will not make the difference that you are trying to make. Um, so set those boundaries of what is it that you don't feel comfortable talking about? What is it that you need in order to keep going, whether it's having really strict boundaries around your time, taking space and time off, figuring out how you want people to contact you if you decide like, I don't want Instagram to be a place that I'm engaging in this conversation, or I don't want to have my email inbox available to everyone. So I'm going to set up those filters, like set up those gates around yourself, protect yourself, and it'll help people engage with you in a way that is more beneficial to you and to them as well. I'm thinking a lot about turning off site comments on my website, which is something that I've been struggling with for quite a few years because a lot of people use them as a place to exchange resources and share stories. But I also see my comments, I get a lot of harassment in my comments and I never post them because I, I am the moderator of my own website and it's not beneficial. But at the same time, I think that harassment is starting to outweigh the value of the comment space. So I, that's something that I'm thinking through of like, what do I as an advocate need to do, even if it means sacrificing this space? How can I create that space in other places for people to talk and connect and protect myself and my own mental health while I do the work? So if you ever feel like, oh, I'm being selfish, oh, I'm, I should be giving more, try to think about where that voice is coming from. And is that something you really think or is that something you've been conditioned to think about your work? Yeah. And those boundaries, those boundaries are very, very, very important. And what I'm finding about boundaries is if you're someone who feels as if, well, maybe I am being selfish by taking a break. I think that it's important to know that these boundaries aren't there only to protect you but they're there for the other people as well. So you're doing yourself a disservice by being so openly accessible and available when you can do so much more when you create those boundaries for others in order to help them filter themselves or for them to filter in the right information for them, for what they need, when they need it, and that they have the right method of getting to the information um, as it's available to them. So having these kinds of uh, inquiries go through a website or this on a YouTube or this on wherever, you know, one thing for me, I get a lot of private messages, but I don't get a lot of comments and the comments. And at this point where we are with something positive for positive people, um, the reviews are more important than ever because now we're raising money as a 501c3 nonprofit to help other people in this community to be able to become advocates. So now I have to set the boundary of, I need you to leave a review. If nothing else, that's it. Leaving a review makes this podcast more attractive to advertisers. Advertisers are now given where we are with it as a nonprofit are able to give their money for their message as donors so that that money can be allocated towards ending stigma, creating more advocates within this community. So little things like that for me on my part is I'm just asking for a review. Other people may be asking you to just go through the website first and it's not dismissive at all. It's how, how serious are you? How serious are you about getting the help, the support it is that you need? Because a lot of people, I'll be honest, I hear from a lot of people who send me a message asking a question. I answer the question and then I get like blocked. Like people don't want the association of 
a person who's so open about herpes because what's the first thing that their people who may see that they like something I posted, what are they going to think? They're going to think, oh, maybe so-and-so has herpes. So please be considerate of that as well for yourself is being able to filter in the people who need you accordingly without feeling guilty. I mean, you have to, you have to keep yourself full. You know, and whenever you think, am I being selfish? Ask yourself, am I being self-full? Because when you're self-full, you're able to serve at a much higher uh, capacity. You're way more efficient. And not only that, but the way that you show up full is going to inspire and help fill the cups of others. You know, imagine if you're coming into it in a state where you're not taking very good care of your mental health, where there are other things in your life that are collapsing, that are being neglected because you feel like taking care of those things is selfish because that one person messaged you and it's on unread and they're like, I just got diagnosed. I don't know what to do. Hey, where are you? I thought you answered people. You know, we can't, we can't be bothered by these things. We have to put systems and boundaries in place in order to protect ourselves. I love that self-full. That's really wonderful. I got that from uh, some diagrams. I follow so many like therapists, sex educators, and other advocates on Instagram. There was a diagram of like a pitcher or something, and it's full and it's overflowing and it's going into these cups around it. So it's it's a very good way of looking at it. You're not being selfish. You're being self-full. And if you're someone who does feel guilty for stepping away for a minute or taking a brief hiatus, just let people know like, hey, I'm going to go and take care of these things for a while i am not leaving this space i have to do this in order to come back yeah. and be able to serve better because I've, I've been there like i was um i'll say about a little bit over a month ago maybe six to eight weeks ago i was uh notified that my primary source of income was about to go away and i was like freaking out panicking and i had to hurry up and invest more into my uh, secondary source of income. And then I also still had to do the podcast stuff. I wasn't going to just stop doing that, but I found a way to just balance it. And while that added stress came in at a time where, um, I needed to just get things, I, I needed to get shit done. And that's what the stress did for me. The stress made me get shit done. So now something positive has a website. So that helps manage my time better for something positive for positive people. I fortunately haven't lost that primary source of income yet, but it was more of like a heads up that this would be coming. And unexpectedly, here we are six, seven, eight weeks later, I've still been able to work there and I've been able to invest more in my career on top of that. So it's a matter of um, just sitting with it, take that time, do what you need to do. And, you know, there can be moments where you feel like you're not taking care of yourself. And I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to yoga. I was working out. My workouts were half-assed and sucked. And these are the things that I absolutely need for myself in order to be self-full so that I can best serve the community around me. So I just wanted to drop that in there as an example because there are going to be times and as an advocate, and I'm sure you can speak to this as well, um, having your own support system and being able to lean on people around you is going to be super important. And for you, Ella, you didn't really have that, did you? Nope. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were there were folks who were doing public herpes work and were writing alongside me. I wasn't the first. I was part of like an early wave, I would say. And 
and some of my collaborators like Brittany de la Cretas, whose name I always mispronounce. I'm so sorry. I love her. And Sarit Luban and um, Adriel Dale, like Ashley Monta. There were there was like a cohort of us who were wonderfully supportive of me and, and kind of took me under their wing because they could see that I was in over my head. Um, but I, I did, I was working in a space that hadn't really been fully defined yet. Like I, there was no one there to tell me to take care of myself and to pull back and to set those boundaries. Like we hadn't had those conversations about activist burnout yet as a, as a community. So I kind of, I overextended myself in a lot of different ways. And one of the reasons that I did wind up going into retirement, so to speak, was that I was becoming a very angry person. And I appreciated what you said about you can't, it's it's in the community's best interests as well when you take care of yourself. Because for me, I found myself just running out of empathy for people when they came to me for help or when they asked me questions or when they rightfully challenged me on my opinions. My reaction was always to get defensive and mad. And I, I'm somebody with a temper in general. It's how my anxiety often expresses itself. And I'm just kind of like a a cranky person at times. So I needed to listen to that in myself and see that that anger had the potential to not only hurt me, but to hurt the community that I cared about. And I needed to step away to take care of myself and to get myself back in balance for a while. And it wound up needing to be a long hiatus of several years, but I'm back now. I feel like I have more empathy and more time and more grace than I did then. And I think the community, there were folks in the community who felt like I'd abandoned the community and the work and, and were quite hurt by myself deciding to step away. But I think the vast majority of folks understood that like, yeah, Ella needs a break. Yeah. <laughs> it's been, I had a crazy few years and I'm grateful that so many folks understood that sometimes you just need to, to step away and it's ultimately in everybody's best interests. I want to talk about that. So we'll often hear or not hear from a, the majority. The majority representation of people who have herpes, it's not a problem for. So we'll just consider that to be 85% yeah. of the people who have herpes. These are people who are, it's not a big deal. They're in their relationships. They have their families or they have their communities and they have their support. So there's really no need for them to come into this space of needing to advocate and there's no need for them to reach out for anything. So we're dealing with about 15% of the population of people who have herpes. I'm not naming the statistics. You know how I feel about that. So <laughs> in that, oh my God, L, I'm having deja vu right now of like that, that behind you, that closet, the shirt, I guess, I don't know. I'll talk to you about it after the podcast, <laughs> but, um, we, my apartment looks like a dorm room. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, it, we uh, often will take that one negative comment of you're not, you don't, you don't care about us and completely forget about the dozens of comments that we've gotten that are like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is great. Yeah. Thank you for what you do. And we'll just latch on to that negative feedback. Why? Why do we do that? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it's very human. Like I, I have a lot of friends who are digital creators who don't always work in the herpes space, but like I talked to, um, one of my friends is Carlos Maza, who's a Vox journalist and, and talks a lot about, um, 
political discourse, he's, he's phenomenal, but we talk a lot about this because he receives a ton of harassment online. And those like that one nasty comment will outweigh the 50 positive comments because it can be so either it's hateful or it's insulting or it hit us where it hits us where it hurts. And, um, maybe it, maybe it attacks like a, a failing that we're insecure about. Like the stuff that always hurt me were, were people saying that I was ungrateful for the support of the community or that I was making money off of other people or like things that were really targeted and specific that showed that they knew who I was and had been following my work. They weren't just like some everyday troll who came across me and that always hurt me so much more because I felt like I had failed and that I had disappointed someone who mattered and I've received so much love over the years but we're all human and we we also our brains process digital harassment and digital insults the same way they would as in person interactions like our brains don't really distinguish between those two things so when people say you know it's just the internet or don't read the comments like they're overlooking that psychological process that happens in our brain that is very human and if you think about your life like you can probably remember most of the time somebody has called you a dick to your face like those things you don't forget that like that that usually stays with you and but you might forget all the wonderful comments that you've gotten from your manager or from your friends or from your partner so I think that it's important to remember that that is like a human experience and a psychological fact. That's not weakness and that's not insecurity. Um, I, I've, I've been looking into resilience training um, and how, how you can build up that muscle and that thicker skin because it's not intuitive for everyone, but it is hard and it is something that you need to dedicate yourself to and learn and it doesn't come naturally. So I've thought a lot about this <laughs> and it's, it's tough. It's tough. There's no easy answer, but it's, it's worth stating and reminding each other. I always say to my friends, like you are not weak for feeling attacked or unsafe or upset by these comments like you are a normal human with normal skin and we are not all captain marvel yeah i always ask those people like you know why do you think that what about this statement is true because oftentimes it's not a true statement at all like they don't even believe what they're saying like I haven't had anything like this, but um, I will say the most extreme situation I've had was I saw that someone I'm in a mutual support group with um, posted a YouTube video and it just says herpes and they've got a mask on and I'm like 15 seconds in. I'm like, this dude's going to fucking kill himself. So I hurry up and I send him a message. I was like, hey, call me. Here's my number. Call me right now. And uh, he's like, oh, I can't talk right now, but I'll call you in like 10 minutes. So we end up talking for a bit and I watch a little bit more video, but I just wanted to know, like, hey, man, are you OK? Like, what's what's going on? Like, I, I didn't watch the video. I saw enough to recognize you're a dude with a mask on talking about you, you have herpes and the title's herpes and you're wearing a mask like that's completely undoing so much of what's already been done and it just it really hurt for me to have seen that and while his intention just may have been to express it and get it out there it's like hiding your face is creating so much let me not say is creating but could create so much more anxiety because it's like well what if someone recognizes my forehead or my earlobes or my haircut and so we talked about that um, I don't remember if he ended up taking it down, but there was just so much more than the herpes that was going on. And yeah. there was childhood trauma. Um, he identified as a sex worker. He talked about his experience with that. And I spent like an hour and a half on the phone with this person twice, um, just trying to keep them from 
um, those those dark thoughts and experiences, you know. And so a lot of this stuff is it gets heavy. It gets really draining. And I think fortunately I may have been conditioned through my experiences to be able to tolerate things like that and have more of a capacity to love and have that empathy and be able to be that support system for others, but it also makes it easy to know that I have so much support around me. So that's just like, these are the kinds of things that you all will never hear about. And while everyone's diagnosis at that moment is the worst thing that is going on in that moment, and I always want to highlight in that moment, because that's when it's the worst. It's the worst in that moment. But once you begin to create that armor, you educate yourself, you inform yourself, and you begin to lean into your support system and lean into the resources that are all out there, you can learn like, hey, you know, this, this is okay. It's okay. I can, I can, I can work with this. But oftentimes, like, there's so much more to the diagnosis than just the herpes. The herpes may highlight other areas, other issues that are going on that need to be addressed, such as um, that trauma or your beliefs about your own sexuality, your beliefs about um, the the events that surrounded the diagnosis and these are often things that need to be checked so it's really good to just be able to question yourself and um and i'm now i'm jumping all over the place but the big thing that i wanted to leave everybody with is when you begin to challenge am i doing the right thing is what this person is this person's negative feedback really valid question it question them And then nine times out of 10, there's going to be inconsistency there between what they're saying and what they explain they're saying. And then you question it. Ask yourself. And if you don't believe yourself, if you don't trust yourself, ask a friend. Nine times out of 10, someone around you is going to know you and be able to communicate to you in a way that gives you the path to your own truth. Absolutely. Nothing else to add. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you writing something. I didn't know what you were doing. I was like, oh, do I keep talking? Do I stop? No, no, it's, I think that you just pinpointed something really profound that I've, I've been thinking a lot about myself is that getting diagnosed with herpes or another STD or STI can, they often trigger like an underlying pain or insecurity that a lot of people have. And for me, I think getting diagnosed with herpes was really traumatic, not just because it's a stigmatized illness, but because it, it so directly pinpointed a deep insecurity that I had about my sexuality and about my worth as a person because I was somebody who was very sexually active and I'll put very in scare quotes because I wasn't really but compared to what we expect especially of young women I felt like I was promiscuous and so getting diagnosed made me feel like I was fitting a painful stereotype and a lot of the issues that I had around my diagnosis and why it was so painful and why it took me so long to cope was not about herpes at all. It was about this underlying thing that I had never really addressed. And I, I see that a lot. Like I see that in folks who get diagnosed and can't move on or become celibate because they're petrified of, of sharing their diagnosis. Like often it comes from um, underlying insecurities or fear of connecting with others or fear of making themselves vulnerable that may have already been there and that the diagnosis is exacerbating. And I think it's just, I wrote it down because it's something I'm outlining the chapter of the memoir that I want to write that will talk about getting diagnosed. And I'm not writing a memoir about herpes, but I'm writing a memoir about some of those issues around sexuality and, and women's sexuality. And it's just like making a note of like, I need to make sure that I'm underlining that really clearly that while getting diagnosed with herpes does feel like the end of the world 
it was because there were all these underlying issues that, that were being pulled out into the open in a way that was actually quite healthy in the long term because it forced me to reckon with them. So I was writing some notes for myself for later oh, yeah. about that. <laughs> all right, cool. And then I'll let you hear this. So if you got other stuff you want to write about, I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, now, we've gotten through the um advocate side the reaching out to advocate side so let's get into more of the personal stuff like um dating for instance you've been active and vocal about herpes having herpes and writing about herpes your faces you google herpes and there's there's ella dawson so after being so active in this space has it been challenging for you to date And I very rarely am in a circumstance where I tell somebody that I have herpes on a date and they're shocked. Um, Usually when I, so I've been in a committed relationship for two years. So just for context, like I've been out of the scene for a while, but when I was actively dating in New York city on Tinder and on the dating apps, um, I would usually either make a joke in my Tinder profile referencing either herpes or referencing that I was infamous. Like I think for a long time I had up there that um, InfoWars called me a slut once. And then like if they're bored, they can go Google like InfoWars slut Ella and like figure it out on their own. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the way that I filtered people of like trying to get it just out of the way. That's so such fun. such a weird thing to introduce on a date of just like, by the way, I'm internet famous for having an STD. Um, so I tried to like get it out of the way even before they messaged me. And very often, as a result, I would receive messages from people being like, hey, you're really attractive and cool. And by the way, I also Googled you and I think your work is awesome. Um, So it would be upfront, out of the way, done very quickly. And they would be able to decide for themselves if they wanted to go down this path. And I wouldn't even have to know that I was being rejected by somebody. Um, My current partner on our first date, like we didn't talk about it at all before the date. Like it didn't come up in our texting or conversations, but he got to the bar and he was like, I just want to let you know, I watched your Ted talk while I was on the subway. I think you're awesome. We don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but like, you're cool. So how was your day? <laughs> and like, it, it was such a wonderful, like, icebreaker. And we didn't really wind up talking about herpes all that much. It was just like, a part of my work and a part of my life. And he also is a little older. He was in his, he was, I think, 30 or 31 when we first started dating. So he'd been around the block. Like he'd encountered herpes in other relationships. He was educated about it. Like he didn't have those gut reactions that a lot of people have. But even when I was in college and like even when I was dating freshly diagnosed Um, at that age, people don't really know all that much about STIs because it's just, they haven't encountered it yet. They didn't get very good sex education. Like people are kind of new and innocent and shiny and just, they're much more prone to freaking out when they're being disclosed to. And something that I did was I, um, I was known around my college campus as being the editor of the art and sexuality magazine, which is a pretentious way of saying that we were like the student run soft core, like magazine basically. So I think I already attracted people who were quite open-minded and were not very judgmental. And then when it would come out in conversation that like, Oh, I have this STI or, Oh, I'm working on this essay about this thing. Like there would still be that expression of kind of like, temporary shock but then they would google on their phone herpes transmission statistics or like think about it over the weekend and get back to me um the one disclosure that i had that was like purely 
we want to go have sex, I need to tell this person, was I was at a Halloween party. I was dressed as Wonder Woman. I was very proud of my homemade costume. I was flirting with a friend of a friend who I'd been, like, interested in for a while. He was, like, a friendly acquaintance. And we were flirting at the party, and we started walking back to his room and we were both tipsy we weren't drunk um like everybody was consenting but we were quite tipsy and I was like hey there's a hammock let's go sit in the hammock because I was like shit we need to have this conversation and I very bluntly was like just so you know like I have herpes I'm not symptomatic right now I'm on Valtrex this the transmission statistic is something like a one or two percent chance like I just wanted to let you know so that you know and he like went quiet and then he was like okay that's fine I have condoms do you like condoms is that okay with you I was like sure And it was like, it was easy. It was done. So I think we hear a lot of the horror stories. We hear a lot about the worst way it could go and getting rejected. And our brain rushes to think, what's the worst thing that could happen? We we catastrophize. When in reality, most of my disclosures have been really funny and like surprising and awkward, but only temporarily awkward. Because at the end of the day, this is somebody who is interested in me. And they, if they are interested in me enough, they'll do whatever mental gymnastics they need to do to like quiet that fear in their head. Um, but I try to talk as much as possible about like the, the funnier interactions I've had because we just don't tell those stories enough. And I think that it's much more common and the more confident and calm you are when you disclose, the more calm they will be when you tell them, if you go in and you're like, I'm so ashamed and scared to tell you this thing, like they're going to freak out because you're setting them up to. But if you go in and you say like, I just, I just want to check in with you quickly about this. Like, I don't know when the last time you got tested was, this is what I know. What do you know about your health? Let's make a plan together then it's like you're you're working on something together in a proactive way. You're giving them the option to make decisions about their body. Like that's the best way to set up any kind of sexual encounter. So that's my mini TED talk about this. Um, but it's something that I really enjoy talking about even now because it's, it's always going to be part of my life that I am this public figure and I get it out of the way quickly. I have a sense of humor about it. And honestly, it's been weeding out far more assholes than anything else. Like I've, I've never really lost anybody I really liked over it. Yeah. And, um, I like how you said we can move forward together, come up with a plan because we leave that out. We leave out next steps often early in disclosure. Let me say that. So early in disclosures is, uh, I have herpes and then you hear crickets. So when we do that, we're leaving it to the other person to solely process whatever, the first few things that come to mind when they hear the word herpes. And oftentimes it's going to be stigma based. You yeah. see the jokes in the media, you'll see uh, memes or you'll see people being shamed or associated with some sort of a negative behavior. So that's often what you're leaving. That's what you're up against. Essentially, when you're telling a stranger, I have herpes and then nothing else, that's what you're leaving them to think about. So it's very important to be able to introduce this conversation during conversations around consent or when you're talking about uh, negotiations before a sexual encounter or if you're going to just do it, do it and give the next steps. So it's I have herpes and here's what I'm doing about it. Here's what I know about my body. Here is how I plan to keep you safe. And I'm looking forward to having a really great time with you Um and this is what we're going to do in order to be safe. Do you consent to this? Are you okay with that? Like, what do you think? 
So when you do it from that perspective, you give them something to challenge what they believe to be true about herpes and the stigma according to what they've read, seen, heard from friends, family, and media. Now with this real person who's standing in front of them living with herpes that they had no idea had, they had herpes. Because like, even um, like I'll see that, I've seen that someone said that you can you don't look like you have an STD. Well, what does a person with an STD look like? And then all of a sudden you present them with their first person that they've seen with an STD apparently, and it blows their fucking mind. So you have to kind of, you have to implant new beliefs into them. And the simplest way to do that is to, I have herpes and, and then you follow that up with what needs to happen next or what you would like to see happen next and then give them the choice to make. Yeah, it sucks that we have to educate people. Like, it does suck. And I think that a lot of people, especially when they're newly diagnosed, feel like this is so unfair that I have to do all this work. And it's true. Like, it is unfair. It does suck. But at the same time, like, when you want somebody or when you are interested in somebody, whatever the context is, it's part of being a wonderful partner. It's part of showing that you are considerate, that you are informed, that you are responsible. And even if you take STIs out of it, we all bring those things to relationships, whether it's like, hey, I have insecurities around X I've been cheated on, or I am uh, really bad at texting and unavailable during certain hours. Like we all have things that we bring to the relationship that our partner needs to know in order for us to have a positive relationship. Even if it's like a one night stand, maybe it's like do not touch my neck like I hate when people touch my neck like we all have that stuff and it's it's as long as you're upfront about it and and clear it's the end goal is to have a positive encounter that is mutually satisfying and safe and fun and respectful and your part of that is talking about this thing and it's uncomfortable but it might be really uncomfortable for them to say like hey i'm allergic to latex condoms like can we use this other thing (laughs) or like hey i really don't like this specific sex act or whatever it is like we we all have to do it and i think that if we think of stis as just part of that conversation around consent and informed consent it takes a lot of the pressure off us too we're not it's not this big scary thing that we're doing it's part of something we're all participating in and this is just what we're bringing to the conversation yeah and this is just one element under the umbrella of sex because prior to getting into the space of understanding that sex also meant sexual health um, when you talk about consent and negotiations, you get into kinks, you get into role play, you get into all of these various things. And you learn that my idea of what sex is coming into this interaction with a new partner may not be what their idea of sex is. So while I think, oh, we're not having sex until my penis goes into her vagina, there are so many other things that play a role in that. Like, For example, like how do two male identifying people have sex or transgendered people have sex or two um, vulva owners have sex? You hear hear the hesitance like I'm learning. It's a process, but I think that I'm I'm, I'm, I've gotten way better at it over the last two years as far as like saying different things um, that I'm just not familiar with. So two out of the 30 years that I've been here uh, for me to be able to articulate it in the way that I am. I'm pretty fucking proud of myself. (laughs) But 
sex looks different. It looks different for different people. It's different for different bodies. Um, there may be positions that someone's uncomfortable with, or we may have to adjust a little bit for someone who may be disabled or who has uh, different medical conditions. So all of these things going into the interaction, like setting the expectations or setting the standards for what sex is going to be between you and this specific uh, this specific partner or partners is going to set the foundation for a damn good experience when everybody knows what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about disclosing. Um, we talked about your experience on um, like being able to disclose on dating sites. I wanted mm-hmm. to get with you and talk about like positive dating sites because people feel like that is. And uh, when people find out about that there are positive dating sites out there. Um, maybe the first thing that they do is run to them or maybe they're put off by them because it's like, well, I don't want anybody else to know or whatever the thought process may be. Um, I saw something, I believe that you wrote about how dating sites perpetuate stigma. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was that a thing? Yeah. Okay. And Talk I to me. A few years ago uh-huh. and definitely in like a fit of anger. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, let's hear it. I'm, I'm seriously, I'm, I, this is a space for clear, concise, uh, communication and just real information. So I'll, I want you to be able to share that here. Like, let's talk about what you felt, what your experience has been. Yeah. So I did a few years ago, write a blog post about why I don't support, uh, STI and positive dating sites. And I definitely wrote it coming from a place of anger because very frequently when I first, when I was more public, I would receive pitches from startup founders, people who were looking to move into this space as entrepreneurs, and they were looking for spokespeople or collaborators or just to pick my brain. And I got very frustrated because what I saw was a lot of those folks were not people coming from the STI community personally. They were not people with a public health background. They were people who saw that we are an underserved community and that they could make money. So I, it was interesting rereading that and receiving, seeing the responses that I got because a lot of folks were quite hurt by what I said in the sense of I wasn't being empathetic to why folks are drawn to those spaces. So just as context, like I was definitely coming from a place of frustration because I saw what I saw as exploitation happening. And I wasn't talking about all STI dating sites, but definitely had a lot of opinions. Um, what I would say now is that like, I don't judge anybody for using those dating services. I think that there, there are credible reasons and genuine reasons why people are drawn to them, whether it's that they are living in a community where it's just more dangerous to talk more openly about their STIs. Maybe it's that with their, the specific way that herpes works in their body, it's, it's, um, more active and so they really want to be with a partner who understands that because it has a stronger impact on their life so i really don't judge anybody for for using those services i think that there there can be a place for them in people's lives but i really distrust the people who set up those services and not all of them but i think if it is not something that you have a background in either personally or professionally i see a lot of people trying to make a quick buck and um those are the folks who really enrage me because 
they don't truly want to challenge the stigma. Like they may put up a resource page on their site. They may talk about how they want to make the world better. But at the same time, their business model depends on that stigma existing in order for people to then pay for whatever service they're providing. And that can be a dating site. That can also be like at home testing and screening services for STIs where you don't have to go to the doctor. It's folks who see ah, this community is vulnerable, they're in pain, and they will they will spend money to make that feeling go away. And how can we take advantage of that in order to set up a business? So what I would really encourage from folks is, like, be skeptical, be conscious of how are they marketing to me? What language are they using? What's the story of the founder behind this business? Are they somebody who truly is invested in helping the community? Or are they coming here because they recognize that we are a vulnerable community that is underserved and that a lot of the folks who are just diagnosed are the most vulnerable they will ever be because they are searching for reassurance, they are searching for community, and they're not well-versed enough in the STD or in the business to know who's a fraud. So I would just, I encourage folks to be very critical critical thinkers whenever whenever these businesses pop up. I think that there are folks who do amazing work in this space. And I know that a lot of um, advocates are spokespeople and like, I completely respect that. I just made the choice when I started doing this to not engage and to not be involved because for one thing, I don't have the scientific understanding to know, especially with the testing services and the vaccine stuff, I don't know who's full of shit. I don't have the expertise to detect that. So like step one, stay in far away from all of that because I just don't know what I'm endorsing and it would be an irresponsible use of my platform. And then with the services, I will not endorse anything that I would not personally use. And I, it doesn't mean that I judge other, other people for using it, but I'm just not going to endorse it. And that can be whether it's a sex toy or a type of protection or a service like I'm just not going to endorse it because I don't in good conscience want to do that. This is also my not my main source of income, so I don't financially need to do that. It would just be me being like, ooh, money, I'm going to take it. Um, I, don't, I have the privilege to be able to make those decisions because I have that financial security. And not everyone does. That's another thing. Like... I have a day job. I'm very well paid in that day job. Like I do all of this work because it's important to me. Yeah. getting that paper, um, writing those tweets. But I, so I, those are the guidelines that I've put up and this was definitely, it's been a humbling conversation for me. I think that I wrote that blog post when I was starting to reach that empathy, burnout, angry place. And I was just very judgy of people. <laughs> so I think that it's been interesting for me to revisit and to try to listen more than I'm speaking as to why people are drawn to those services and why they do endorse them. And so that's, that's my perspective. I just like, I really hate these Silicon Valley mostly straight white men who have no background in public health who are like, ooh, let's do a dating service. And it's always like horrible branding and mildly insultingly named. And I'm just like, can you get the hell out of my face? I do not want you to take me to lunch. I will not tweet about your terrible product. Like you are clearly just Googled herpes and found me and you're like, great, I can use her. Like get out of my face. I am not falling for you. I do not trust venture capitalists and most startup founders. Like that is my default setting. Goodbye. Yeah, rightfully <laughs> that is so. That's what I will say. <laughs> rightfully so. And that's important. I'm glad that you said everything that you just said, but it's really important to 
be able to do your research. And as someone with a marketing background, um, I found like when I was asked to be a spokesperson for Dating Positives, it was important for me to understand like how committed a dating site like this was to destigmatizing herpes. So fortunately for me as a spokesperson, I'm given a lot of freedom to say like my beliefs and project the beliefs of those who are around me and put the real information out there. So um, for me, like through them, if you can do your added research, datingpositives.com, and there's even a dedicated uh, magazine online called Waxo, W-A-X-O-H, that you can go to. And that's really what I use to get a lot of the LGBT information, LGBTQIA plus information. Did I forget a letter? Mostly important letters. Okay, or cool. I shouldn't say important. The uh, more we'll have added that. Mainstream recognized letters. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but um, that's where I go to get a lot of the information. So I, I sense like a genuine concern for uh, doing something about the stigma, and I appreciate that my own feedback is being welcomed, and they've been supporters of the podcast since last October, November. So the consistency there really lets me know that I made a good decision in bringing that. Uh, bringing that resource onto this podcast. And I've had positive experiences on dating sites, way more positive than negative uh, dating sites like Dating Positive. So um, it's an option. It's one to consider. It's not the option. Um, And that's important to me as well that I'm allowed to be able to say things like that. It's like this is an option to consider and it's there and it's available for you when you are ready to use it. Because fortunately for me, I didn't find a dating site right away for people with herpes. Like I had to go through my shit and I had to feel my shit and get to a point where I recognized it as an option. I was able to use it as an option uh, in addition to you know, my own personal experiences. Like I'd still go out, I would still meet people, engage with people. And then I also had the dating site where I was able to meet people. And even through there, I've been able to connect with other communities and other people who are doing things like providing um, support to people who are newly diagnosed, just as more alternatives. Like there's a whole world of (laughs) what is to come um, in terms of experiences after a positive herpes diagnosis that people just aren't aware of, and it's all stigma-based. So if we can get to a place where we're able to use the tools that are available to us in order to help destigmatize what it means to have herpes or any STI, really, or to even just be a sexual being, then we're off to the start of a much more loving, caring, compassionate society that aims to work towards just what's in the greater good, the better interest of life in general. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think it's like, I, I think that's amazing that they offer you that support and that freedom. It just goes to show that they care a lot about giving back to the community and not just taking from it, that they're not just trying to make money or whatever it is. Like they, they are interested in supporting the community, supporting advocates with the work that they're doing. Like, I'm not a burn down all capitalism type of person. Like I'm definitely on Elizabeth. I'm, I'm very interested in Elizabeth Warren, but we also need companies need to exist. Like 
we need to get paid in some way for the work that we're doing, whether it's by being spokespeople or just asking for tips from the community. Like finance and money is always a thing. Like that is a force in everything that happens. And um, I think that it's just important that companies who are in this space are as interested in giving as much as they're taking. And it sounds like they, they are doing, that their values really match ours. And I think that's, that's phenomenal. Um, I like one of the things around, I think what you said around STI and positive dating sites being an option is really important. I think what upsets me is when I see people who see it as the only option mm-hmm. and like that they have to segregate themselves into these spaces that are just for people with herpes or HPV or whatever it might be and that they can't date anybody who is STI negative. And that's where I get really upset and, and sad is when I see folks who see those sites and then think that's where they have to be forever. And it's just not like I, I've never needed to use those services. I'm also just like a foolhardy, bold person who's just like, I don't care if you reject me or hate me. Like, I have herpes, blah. But like, um, I've I've been using the the regular dating sites and I've been just fine. And I met my current partner on Tinder. And before that, I'd used OkCupid and all these other things. And like, I, I used them and I was fine. And like, all STI or all dating services, no matter if they're STI or not, like they're all kind of shitty. (laughs) They're all kind of weird and uncomfortable and awkward. And like having herpes just makes like, they add like a 1% of weirdness on top of the already weirdness of using those sites. Um, so I just, I just want to caution people like you, you have so many options and you don't see them when you've just been diagnosed because all you can see is your own fear and hurt. And that is normal. And that is what stigma is. But you have you, the world is your oyster like you will be fine you will fuck you will do whatever you want i don't know if i can swear but i apologize um but like it's you have so many options and you just find the ones that work the best for you and if that happens to be an sti positive site like more power to you for making that decision and having that agency but have that agency make that decision for you and make it not out of fear but out of what is best for you and your needs yeah and then people are weird too in general <laughs> i yes, mean you can yeah so i mean it's important to be able to know yourself know what you want know what you're looking for and it's all we're all learning we're all learning as we go that's what life is um and be able to articulate what it is that you need communicate those needs and ask give the oppor- give the other person the opportunity to consent to helping you get those needs met I mean, and we're, oh man, we're dealing with like dishonesty. We're dealing with other people who don't know what they want. So setting those boundaries, it goes back to the beginning of the episode, set boundaries with people. Um, So life after advocacy or life in retirement of advocacy, what's it been for you? Um, We talked about how like I, you literally went off the grid and I found you under this alias bros and what is it? Bros and pros? Bros and pros. Yeah. That's always been my Twitter handle. Yeah. And I'm trying to like make it more consistent across all my presences. Okay. But, yeah. I was um, like, I was like, no way, that's Ellen Dawson. It's like uh, 600 followers or something like that. I was like, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah, I started. Um, I'd always been on Instagram just as a private user. Instagram was where I just like connected with my friends, and I kept it really closed down. But in the fall, in the summer fall, I started using Instagram for bookstagram for book reviews just because I'm a really voracious reader. I'm researching for a project right now. So 
I decided to join Instagram just to be part of the bookstagram community and then realized like I saw the work Emily DePass does and was just blown away by how she uses Instagram to share information and to educate and it made me want to loosen up my own presence and to talk more about just myself and my life and my writing in general so it's a very very young Instagram account which is why it's tiny tiny but it is me um and uh, I'm not going to tell people to go follow me, but I am there now, and, and uh, you can come say hi. Um, but yeah, I, so my retirement, so to speak, is I, um, I have a day job. I work for TED. I work in social media and audience development. Um, I've tried to keep writing and keep writing publicly, but I've branched out in what I talk about. I'm really interested in mental health and mental health stigma. Um, I've written a lot about anxiety and suicidal ideation and also grief. Um, I lost two friends last summer who both died quite suddenly who were in their 20s and 30s. And grief is really fascinating in the way that we don't talk about it, the way that we don't have language for it. And what I've realized is that the main thread of everything that I'm interested in writing about is often shame and a lack of vocabulary and a lack of knowing how to just talk about stuff, whether it is herpes, whether it is mental health, whether it is sex and consent, whether it's grief, like that's what really interests me are the things that no one is saying and why aren't they saying them and how can I help and how can I model that? So that's what I've been working on over on the side. Um, I'm still around, I'm still interested in herpes and internet culture and all that kind of stuff. My new project, and I, I hate saying, oh, I'm writing a book because I have no idea if it'll actually happen. I don't have an agent. I don't have a deal. I'm trying to just write on a topic that I find interesting. But what I'm currently working on is basically a memoir about casual sex and about my experience um, in college and my first year or two outside of college and how we don't really have a language for casual sex. Like, I think that there's certain communities that are phenomenal, whether it's the polyam community, folks who are engaged in kink, like, they know how to talk about sex and casual sex and boundaries and what people want. But I think the vast majority of folks who aren't in those communities just don't know how to talk to each other. And they t we use terms like one night stand and hookup culture and casual sex. And like, it's all kind of this amorphous blob. And we're very uncomfortable communicating what we want, what we expect, and what we need from people who are not our committed romantic partners or committed sexual partners. So if you're having a one-night stand or something that's more casual, loosey-goosey, like people approach vulnerability and communication as caring too much or being needy or being too demanding. And I think especially with young people who are just kind of figuring it out, it's kind of like the person who seems to care less wins and has all the power. And so we hurt each other in all these fascinating ways because we just don't want to be the person who cares more or looks like they cares more. So I've been taking a really stern look at my own decisions and my own choices and the way that I've lived my life and the ways that I've hurt other people or failed to communicate what I need because I internalized that message that like if you talk about sex with your partner or even call them your partner, like that is bad or not chill enough, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I'm working on it. I've been interviewing my exes, which has been bizarre and weird. Um, I've been having a lot of really overdue conversations of just like, hey, what did you actually want during our entire relationship? Because we never talked about it. And as a result, we like treated each other like garbage. 
and it's been interesting to see that overlapping so much with my diagnosis because having like there's a real turning point in my life that I can see where when I got diagnosed I was suddenly required to talk about sex in a way that I had never done before and all of my best relationships have been after that because it was the thing that forced me to get serious about just talking to people as if they were human so I've written one chapter and I have a bunch of notes um but it's something that I'm really excited about and that feels like kind of the, the logical culmination of everything I've worked on. Um, and I'm unpacking, like, why was my diagnosis so upsetting? It wasn't because herpes sucks. It's because I was petrified of being considered a slut who, like, wasn't relationship worthy. And, like, I'm, I'm rereading my diaries from my teenage years in college. And, like, I wrote so much about... The, we call it the virgin whore dichotomy in feminist academia, but what it basically means is you're either a slutty person or, like, a lovable person, <laughs> and, like, you're either a relationship girl or a casual sex girl, it's the Madonna whore, virgin whore, like, it's all of that, and I was so wrapped up in that, I thought it was real, and I, even though I was a feminist academic, I still put myself in those boxes, and getting the herpes diagnosis kind of pushed me out of those boxes, because... It just forced me to address it. So I've been unpacking that. I've been reading a lot about sexuality and gender identity. I also realized while I was in retirement that I'm bisexual. So that's been a whole thing. Um, but that's what I'm doing on Instagram is just like sharing what I'm reading and what I'm thinking about. And you can still find me at elladawson.com. And I'm always on Twitter, very opinionated. Um, I want to do some political digital volunteering during the primary and in the general election in the states in the next year or two so i'm probably going to link up with the campaign at some point um but yeah i'm around trying to just like not be only herpes trying to be herpes plus everything else in a more responsible holistic healthy way because i i did not know what i was doing the first time around you just threw bisexual. I found out I was bisexual in there. Like it was just so <laughs> casually. Was that so? It's Pride Month, and this is yeah. a great opportunity for us to um, give something to. Uh, I'm I'm not going to say this correctly, but like be able to allocate a portion of what we're doing here to speaking to that. I have a friend sure. who has a brother who just came out as bisexual recently, and this was so liberating for him, and it's. I, I'm like I'm just I understand what how it feels to be able to express yourself and say this is how I want to be seen and for people to just welcome you with open arms and have that experience of uh, being able to be seen. Yeah, I uh, so I it's funny like I knew I was bisexual when I was a teenager and like I did have I didn't have a girlfriend but like there were multiple girls I was interested in and who I kissed in like a very teenage like drunk at a party kind of way and like I knew that about myself as a teenager and I came out to my parents and I did the whole thing and something very weird happened which was that I went back in the closet when I was in college and it's I, I think specifically with bisexuals, because there is such bi erasure, like people don't really take bisexuality seriously, they don't talk about it. It's only recently that we've started to have really good representation of bisexuals on television and in film. Um, there's just a lot more doubt and policing that happens for bi people, even within the LGBTQ community. And when I went to college, there were so many people who were so out and proud and radical about their queerness that I, I started to doubt myself and feel like, well, I mostly date men and I mostly know how to talk about being interested in men and maybe I am straight and maybe it was an experimentation
Tisha Rafaes, and I, I kind of backed myself up back into the closet because I just felt like I was, I wasn't queer enough or gay enough. And, um, it makes me really sad that I did that. And I, it's nobody's really fault, but it's, it's, I think it's worth reiterating over and over again that bi people, no matter how, what their ratio is of genders that they're dating, whatever it might be, like you're still bi. It also doesn't matter who you're having sex with. Like we don't ask straight virgins. Are you sure you're straight? Cause you've never had sex with anybody. Like, I think that it's this bi people have this like weird catch 22 thing where we're like, nobody really takes us seriously. Um, But when I was in my twenties, I started to come back out of the closet because I had a crush on a colleague at work and was just like, she is beautiful. This is not like, this is not platonic. And that kind of gave me the kick in the ass I needed to start thinking more about my identity and how I, how I felt. And weirdly enough, it's through dating my current partner who is a cisgender man that I've become more comfortable in my bisexuality because he's just so supportive and he will like, we'll talk about women who we both find attractive. And like, he's really encouraged me to be more out and to talk about those things and articulate what it is that I like about women or like, it's, it's funny and strange when I say like dating a straight man who's helped me come to my bisexuality, but like he's a supportive ally who wants me to be my full authentic self. And he's been really encouraging. And even though I am dating him and I'm in a relationship with a straight cis man, like I try to spend a lot of time in the queer community now. I, my like go-to bar is a lesbian bar by my office and I spend all my time there. Like, um, I'm trying to be more, vocal and active as an advocate for bi people and to talk more about my various attractions. And there's also this misperception that bi people are transphobic and that bi people think of gender as a binary. And I like the way I think about it is that I'm bisexual because I'm attracted to any and all genders. Like I'm just, gender is not really a thing that impacts who I'm attracted to. Um, one of my, one of my longest lasting relationships was, was with somebody who was a trans woman and just wasn't out yet. And that was really fascinating to unpack of like, Oh, in retrospect, like I had a girlfriend all through my teens and twenties who I just didn't realize was a trans woman. And like, that's one of those moments where being bi for me is not necessarily about the rigid gender binary, because like, what do you do with that? Like that's a whole different situation. Um, so I, I, there's some folks who identify as pan, I identify as bi because it's more recognizable. It's a term that I knew growing up. Um, I do not want to try to explain what pansexuality means to my parents. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to stick with bi. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I think about it and, and what it's been like for me. And um, I'm really excited to see more bi representation and, and more bi people in film and television. And it's, it's really meaningful and just, it's great. 20 by teen, it's here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. That's I like that you choose to identify as what you choose to identify as because that's where we are in the world. We are at a place where it shouldn't matter what you choose to identify as. Like, why should there be any kind of erasure of what you identify as because it 
conflicts with what someone else believes about a person who identifies as whatever you know like there's uh, I don't know if there's a misconception about this but like it's easy for someone to say there's some sort of like a straight erasure but I don't feel like I'm being erased <laughs> like I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you yeah. there's been so much queer representation on this podcast and a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from listeners has been more queer representation on a podcast I'm like well that has never been a, a thing for anyone but like if you listen to any of the episodes you'll hear a lot of the women say that they identify as queer or that they've dated women and men um especially in the earlier episodes and then um the men i've interviewed two men who identify as homosexual so it's it's i think that this is a really safe place for people to um have an understanding that we can have these kinds of conversations with people who don't identify as what we identify as and that we're it's okay for us to learn it's okay for us to ask questions and develop a understanding and to develop an understanding here of what it means to really see someone else and to be seen and just being able to communicate that there is also uh there was an episode that i recorded it's going to go up next week with someone and what she said was that there's this inherent, or I said this, there's this inherent belief that bisexual people are inherently uh, polyamorous. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to tell me, no, that's not true. No, it's, I, there are a lot of stereotypes around bi people. And um, some of them are positive and kind of funny, and some of them are more harmful. And I... I'm one. I'm like thinking about like how much do I want to share about my relationship? You but do like, not have to. So listen, <laughs> hey, we could cut this off at any point in time if you yeah, want to save this for something um, to write about. We could do that. Well, but while we're here yeah. and on the subject, like I'd like for us to be able to put some of that in here. Like um, yeah. I think it's important for us to be able to share, especially since this has been something that listeners have questioned. And if there's like any erasure of bisexual people going on, like we need to do something to preserve the species. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I'll say about it. I like there have been periods in my life where I have been non-monogamous and where I have had a primary partner and then continued to see other people who were secondary partners. And uh, that was at a point in my life where, ironically, I wasn't out as bisexual. Um, I think there are people who identify as bisexual. There's I don't have any data to back this up, but they they may just know more about polyamory and those things, because if they're actively identifying as bisexual, they might be more likely to also be in those conversations um, in those communities. I think there's bisexual people are not inherently more promiscuous or more likely to cheat or more likely to prefer polyamory. Like, I think that's a stereotype of bisexuals as distrustworthy and just more sexual. And it's a dangerous one because it leads to a lot of violence against bisexual people. Bisexual women are, I can't remember the exact statistic, but we are more likely to have mental health issues and to face intimate partner violence and things like those, um, those different types of oppression because of the stereotypes about bi people as dishonest and slutty and whatever else it might be. Um, I happen to be a bisexual person who has been non-monogamous, so (laughs) I'm like fitting the stereotype. Um, but there are bi people who are monogamous and who are traditional and married and conservative. And, and I, the funny thing about sexuality, and this is also true of people who have STIs, like sexual identity, sexual experience, sexual health, like they don't fit on a political spectrum either. 
And like, if you're LGBTQIA, you might be more likely to be progressive and liberal because your humanity and your lived experience is impacted in politics quite directly. But I've met Republican, conservative, deeply religious, bisexual, herpes positive people. <laughs> like, people are really complicated. So um, I know people who are bi and poly. I know people who are bi and monogamous. I, I think it's just important to let people define who they are and share who they are and not make assumptions. And that's true of everyone. Like, I don't assume all straight people want to get married and have babies anymore. Like, we're all very different. We're all different from the cookie cutter stereotypes that we share. Um, there's a great TED talk by Chimamanda Adichie, the danger and power of the single story. And like why the real danger of stereotypes is when they simplify everyone to one specific thing and one specific story based on their identity or their race or their gender and their sexuality, whatever it might be. And that's like, we need more stories and fewer assumptions. So yeah, I think some, some bi people are really hurt by the idea that all bi people are polyamorous just because it, it reinforces the stereotype that we are inherently more sexual or more likely to cheat or whatever. But um, as a bi person who I don't identify as poly, but I've like been in and out of the poly community, I, I'm always kind of like, LOL, that's me. No big okay. deal. <laughs> earlier, earlier, you said polyam and then you just said poly. What What's the difference? Oh, so I don't, I'm not as educated about this as I need to be. I have heard that um, some folks are trying to retire poly because there's also the Polynesian community. And um, so the, the, so some folks are using polyam. I'm not super up to speed on it. So I'm trying to adjust polyam, but it's one of those things where like, I don't really understand the nuances. I don't really understand what's offensive. So I'm just trying to like okay. figure it out and do my best. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I asked is because I just saw this actually yesterday on Emily DePass's uh, Instagram account, sex ELD education. So it's sex education with an L between the E and the D. And um, she posted to her story, uh, something I, I don't remember what the post was but someone mentioned to her in her dm and this is where like the engagement is so important because um if we don't hear feedback from people rep who are underrepresented by various communities that we just may not be a part of then we don't know that there's damage being done so an instance like that like slide into someone's dm like hey you may want to consider respectfully of course um that poly is uh, considered to be um, erasing the Polynesian community. So Poly A and Poly M, uh, and you'll have to go check her Instagram for this. I think that's exactly what it said, but there was a little bit more to the message than what I'm saying. But overall, um, the Poly itself is considered to be erasing the Polynesian community. Um, and we want to use poly A or poly M, and this is something that you can do your research on um, as well. So yeah, go learn about it. I like I. It's like I think that a lot of us have like a knee jerk reaction to like oh language is so complicated and like oh I didn't mean to say the wrong thing because I'm a good person, but we're always learning and we're always trying to be better and we're always trying to be more inclusive. So uh, if it takes retraining your brain to say poly M instead of poly, like it's ultimately a good, generous, respectful thing to do to recognize everybody else's humanity and to welcome more people into the conversation. So I'm clearly still struggling with it and I toggle back and forth and it's a work in process, but, um, but yeah, it's, I also just find it really interesting. Like I never knew that. And I feel like I'm a smarter person now that I know that Polly is often shorthand for, um, Polynesian and that's a community that we don't talk a lot about the representation of. So 
Yeah. Language and words are fun. <laughs> yes, they are. And um, I also wanted to include this statement here because I think it's important to know that this is an inclusive space. We're talking about STIs. We're talking about an element of sexual health. We're talking about as sexual health an element of sex, which goes into this entire umbrella. But this is supposed to be an inclusive community. If you are underrepresented or if you are not represented at all in an uh, air quotes inclusive space, and if you don't feel comfortable uh, reaching out and saying, hey, here I am, I'm not included, or that thing you said is damaging or erasing me from existence, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with sharing that to the space that is considering or identifying itself as an inclusive space, then it's not inclusive. And as people who say, hey, we're an inclusive space here, we have to be open to getting that kind of feedback and doing the work to understand what is being asked of us or what's being said or what we're what damage are we doing so that's important to recognize if you consider yourself to be an inclusive space and that's something that um, I'm working on that I've had to learn and talk through and it's just something that happens from conversation Mm -hmm. yeah and it's I think that it's always important to remember that everybody's learning and everybody's trying and I like I watched this, again, I watched this really great TED Talk at work, um, but there was this great TED Talk that broke down the fact that thinking of people as inherently good people and saying I'm a good person is actually really damaging because it means that when you learn that you've done something wrong or something hurtful, you are you think, oh, but my intention was good, and so you're being mean to me, when in reality, we want to do good things, and even if we have that intention, we can sometimes be hurtful. And I, like, I am a white cisgender woman who grew up in like classic beautiful Connecticut with like no financial concern like I have so much privilege and it's been really difficult to learn all of the ways in which like I have I have privilege that other people don't and there are things that I've said that have been hurtful and it's part of learning and part of giving back to everyone else is is being open to that criticism and trying to learn and trying not to react with defensiveness and it's it can be difficult to not react defensively when somebody is telling you that you've done something wrong and hurtful and you didn't even know like that's I have friends who say like I who feel very attacked and called out and people are like, Hey, that's transphobic. You shouldn't say that anymore. And they feel like they didn't get the memo. So why are they being persecuted? Blah, blah, blah. But like, it's, I think what the way that you're, I think it's really awesome the way that you talk about this and the way that you're opening up this space. It's, it's so worth it. And I, part of my privilege means that I need to be as open to criticism as possible because, (laughs) because I, I just, I have a simpler experience navigating the world than other people do. And I also, I think it's, it's, I'm really frustrated by the fact that the herpes positive community is so by white women, but it's because we have the privilege to have these conversations where there's less risk for us coming forward. And I think it's worth unpacking, like, how can we make this a safer community for folks who have, who are of different sexual orientations or class backgrounds or education levels or race? Like we, it's worth 
having that level of self-scrutiny to figure out how we can elevate more people. And one of the reasons I think your podcast is so cool is that you're creating that space for people to share at whatever comfort level they have, at whatever level of being public they can be. Like, that's so important. And it's one of the reasons why I have taken a step back was I realized I was taking up space. Um, and that space needed to be filled by other people who had a more diverse range of experiences than me. And it was my responsibility actually to say like, hey, I've said everything that I needed to say. I'm going to let somebody else talk and I'm going to listen for a while because it's important for me as a developing person and as an advocate to like realize that I have more to learn. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to get with us and share your insights this wasn't an experience-based podcast by any means this was more <laughs> of like <laughs> help like I needed I, I think that this was useful for where we are right now because I see the advocates that are you know creating all this great content and putting so much energy into their platforms and just being able to support the many people who look for us and find us and even those who like stumble across us years after their diagnosis um this is important for us to be able to take care of ourselves. It's important for the people who listen to this, who are on the fence. And I know there are a lot of people. It is very courageous for you to hit send on that message that you've been thinking about sending to Courtney, Janelle, Emily, Aaron, any of the advocates that are public and open about their STI status just to say anything, be it asking for help, resources, or even just saying hi or thank you or following us or watching a video or something. And let me tell you, that helps when you just want to provide some positive feedback. That kind of thing is what keeps us going a little bit longer. I can't tell you how many times I've sat and wondered, like, damn, is anybody listening to this podcast? And just wanted to be like, all right, well, I just won't record an episode this week. And then, bam, seems like almost instantly I get a message from someone on Reddit or I get a new message and someone's like, hey, you know, I'm so grateful to have found this podcast and I found you and I found some of the other people. Just, I just thank you so much for being there. And then I'm like, fuck, I got to get up and go record this podcast now. But the thing is, it's like, fuck, I, I get to get up and record this podcast like that shit is a recharge that is an emotional recharge in many cases so that little hesitance that you may have to expressing any kind of appreciation like just push through it and you'll feel better about it and as you enter this space and you're surrounded by more and more of this positivity which I know like a lot of people don't you know, we may not be ready for that right then and there but be around it you'll it'll rub off you'll absorb some of it and then you'll be able to take it into your own interactions and before you know it you'll be like you know what I'm gonna open up about having herpes to one person and then it just takes that it has a trinkle effect you open up to one person and then it becomes a little bit easier and just like going back to opening up or coming out it's really about being able to be seen we want to be seen for who we are in our fullest expressiveness of ourselves so let's do that let's let's make sure that we take the time to reflect and we figure out um we figure out what it means to express ourselves and let's do that. Let's be ourselves. Let's be loving. Let's take care of ourselves and therefore be able to take better care of other people. Amen. <laughs> All right. So one more time, Ella, how can people find you? So you can find me at elladawson.com. 
you can find me as at bros and pros because I write pros about bros on Instagram and Twitter. And I also have a Facebook page, Ella Dawson. Um, I'm around. I love Twitter and Instagram. That's where you can find me most reliably. And I also, I also have a newsletter, um, which you can find the sign up link for on, uh, Twitter or Instagram in my bio. It's just where I share works in progress, thoughts I have that aren't ready for an essay, things like that. Um, so yeah, come find me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Yes. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast player you're listening on. We're on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, now iHeartRadio. If you can, just leave us a five-star rating and a review. Now these reviews mean more than they ever have before. I cannot say it enough. These reviews help us get promoted by the podcast companies, which helps get us more exposure, which increases the likelihood of us getting more downloads, getting more sponsors, and being able to provide therapy that people who are struggling with their diagnosis really, really need in order to work through it and be able to more confidently disclose or disclose it all and be able to work through the other issues that they're having and shit maybe even become advocates themselves we're so close to being able to destigmatize herpes and we have to be able to uplift the people who have the most pull and the most experience in being able to get us to that place and all we got to do is just support platforms like this support the people who are putting the energy into destigmatizing herpes and bam all of a sudden this may not even be a thing anymore something positive for positive people would be like an archaic thing of the past till next time Stay sex positive.